Welcome to another episode of Crossroad Talks. This podcast is all about the feeling of being at a crossroads, stepping into the unknown, and reflecting on the moments and stories that shape who you are. This journey of the crossroads goes hand in hand with themes of self-exploration and actualization. It asks the questions, who are you becoming? What will you do to create the life you dream of for yourself? How will you greet change when it comes to meet you? So I created this podcast as a reflection of my own interests in exploring the intersections of storytelling, including poetry, psychology, and spirituality. To me, spirituality means those practices that lead to deeper insight, to feelings of aliveness and meaning, to connection with the world and other beings. It can take place through the lens of religious metaphor and metaphysics, or it can simply be through the lens of embodied human experience. My own approach to wonder is a multi-lens view. I like learning from different traditions and investigating life through different lenses. I'll ask myself, what do different spiritual points of view tell me about the world? What's happening here on a psychological level? What do science and materiality have to say about our experiences? In the conversation you're gonna hear next, I speak to Bavli, who works as a spiritual care practitioner in a hospital. Our conversation takes us into how religious spirituality shaped his worldview growing up in the Coptic faith, how he went through a loss of that faith, and how that matured into finding his calling. Now he provides spiritual care for others during transitional moments in their lives, during their time in the hospital. I'd like to take a moment to add a content warning here. Overall, Bavli and I share a pretty optimistic view of what spirituality and religion can be and how it can benefit well-being on a personal level. However, we do realize and make mention of the harms that religious institutions and people have done throughout history and presently. Many are very much still unresolved and felt today. And there are many injustices going on in the world in the name of religion. So if religion is a sensitive topic for you, you might want to sit this episode out. I've started each episode with a poem. This episode, I opened it up to Bavli to choose a poem or passage that means a lot to him. So this passage he selected comes from Father Matthew the Poor, who's a Coptic theologian. It goes like this. Whenever physical hunger turned cruel against me, I found my gratification in prayer. Whenever the biting cold of winter was unkind to me, I found my warmth in prayer. Whenever people were harsh to me and their harshness was severe indeed, I found my comfort in prayer. In short, prayer became my food and my drink, my outfit and my armor, whether by night or by day. Finding yourself at a crossroad and stepping across the threshold into the unknown means faith is at play. 
the expression, a leap of faith comes to mind for these moments when we let logic subside and open ourselves up to possibility. This concept of faith as it relates to spirituality is what Bavli and I talk about in the conversation you're about to hear next. He begins with his reflection on this passage, and then we dive into the fuller story of how he became the person he is today. So just to kind of give you perspective on the background of it. So just thinking about like thinking about the theme of the podcast and about faith and whatnot. And um, prayer, I think, is something that's universal to a lot of different people, um, religion or no religion, spirituality or no spirituality. And so um, this quote really jumped out to me. I think it's simple enough, beautiful enough to kind of capture the essence of prayer and prayer not being something that you just kind of do as a routine, but as a way of life. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what this passage means to you and why you chose it for the themes that we're going to be talking about today. And maybe when you first interacted with it. It's, it's an interesting quote that really resonated with me because when I first read it, I, I almost romanticized it a little bit too much than what it's really trying to say. I think what he's saying here is that no matter which way his life unfolded and no matter what kind of sufferings he had to deal with the one thing that really did give him comfort was prayer right and prayer and prayer we as a society i think we kind of understand prayer as well let's ask god um for you to get a good mark in school or uh please help me with this job interview so i can get this job it's always asking for things and i think it had an impact on me when i first read this about 10 15 years ago because it changed that whole understanding of prayer for me and it went from you know literally offering or saying a prayer to this is a way of life and prayer is actually how we are meant to live with each other right and um and we kind of already have it set up in society that way if you think about it whether let's say we're at a funeral and we say you know keeping you in my best thoughts i see that as a form of prayer um thinking about you today you know good luck that's a form of prayer um you know trying to do good and help others, right? That is a form of prayer, right? And that's what prayer is. Prayer is meant to be all that is good and beautiful, bringing us together as one big community in the world. And when you're kind of isolated from all that, then prayer probably loses its meaning or essence, right? When you find yourself in such a deep hole, you're probably not thinking about prayer because you're not thinking that prayer can potentially get you out of this, right? And so if you shift your perspective on prayer and see it as a way of life, then um, you'll see that everything you do becomes a form of, of prayer, like quote unquote, a form of prayer. So mm -hmm. I think initially that's why the quote kind of stuck with me and it still does. It still resonates with me 15 years later. That's really lovely. I really like that you are interpreting prayer in this very practical way. And what we're going to be talking about today in terms of faith, I think in a really personal way that kind of shows up differently for each person. I'm really interested in talking about how that shapes the way that we move through our lives, how that lens can add an extra layer of meaning to our lives, how that shows up in decision-making, because I think there is something to faith in the way that we kind of move forward into the unknown. And just like in this passage you shared, 
the nourishment we need can show up for us, whether, you know, here it's represented as food and drink and, and warmth and kindness. And I think that, you know, that's something that can be such a supportive force and feeling to have when, when we're moving through the unknown, which can feel very messy, which is also part of this, this podcast is moving through the messiness of it all and not really knowing how things are going to end up until we can put that narrative on it later and see how it is shaped who we are. Yes. So I am really grateful to you for taking some time to, to chat with me today about your own journey and what you do. So to start off, I'd love to just get a little bit of an introduction to you and the work that you do now in your current role as a spiritual care practitioner and what that looks like. So my name is Bavli and uh, yes, I work as a spiritual care practitioner. Uh, it's been almost seven years now I've been doing that. Um, so a spiritual care practitioner is someone who provides um, spiritual and religious counseling and support. Uh, and that's not only just in hospital settings, it can be actually in any setting now. Um, uh, you know, even sports teams now are actually uh, making sure that they have spiritual care practitioners on their teams to support athletes. Big businesses now and private corporations are also hiring them as well because there seems to be a rise of kind of uh, spiritual identity within people. So they're seeking out people who are certified in this and hiring them. And uh, part of my role as well is I'm a registered psychotherapist as well. So I wear kind of two hats there provide counseling and therapy as well that is not spiritual or religious in nature. And, um, uh, you know, my day is um, quite mysterious. You know, I'll come in every day, um, look at the list, kind of who's in the hospital. I'll go to different medical rounds on the floor and get reports on patients. And then based on that, I'll get different referrals to see different patients or clients. And, um, you know, uh, whether it's uh, individuals who are uh, living with mental health, um, people who are end of life, uh, people who um, have a new cancer diagnosis, um, individuals who are getting new hips and are only in the hospital for a couple of days and then are going back home and, I don't know, going to Florida or the golf course or whatever they do during uh, retirement. I mean, it's a wide range of um, people that I am supporting. Um, and, uh, you know, the extreme of, you know, giving birth to the extreme of someone dying, right? And everything else in between, right? So um, that's a little bit uh, about that. And um, I explore different issues with them. It really depends on what's going on in their life. And that really kind of steers the conversation. I don't have an agenda. You know, when I go in, my agenda is to give you kind of the lowdown of what I do and who I am. And then the rest is on you. And I just walk with you and I journey with you on, on that path. Um, I don't have answers. Um, and if you think I do, then, you know, good luck. <laughs> you know, as, 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 as you, you've mentioned earlier, life is kind of messy. Um, I think a lot of people live their lives kind of black or white. Um, I've really embraced the gray. That's what life is all about. It's about gray. So as much as I like to control how my day is going to look like, I really don't know how it's going to look like because it's just how life is. Right. Mm -hmm. Life is always, always in the gray. Yeah. Um, to dig a little bit deeper into something as well. Um, what does that look like in terms of people showing up with a whole variety of different faiths? You engage kind of in a, just from a focus of spirituality or from a focus of 
whichever faith someone is bringing to you from their experience? A lot of people ask me that. And uh, I always, um, and, and sometimes, so they taught us um, in the field never to expose your own personal faith when, uh, when, uh, when individuals uh, ask you that. But I, I've actually gotten comfortable with saying, I, I, like, I don't have an agenda. And so part of me not having an agenda is that if they're really hyper-focused on wanting to know what I believe in, I'll tell them, right? Mm -hmm. I, I am a Coptic Orthodox Christian, right? Oh, who are the Copts? Oh, we, well, we're the Christians that come from Egypt. Mm -hmm. right and then nine times out of ten when they realize they don't know anything about that they'll just skip it over and then start talking about their own belief system if they have one mm -hmm. and so usually i'll engage in um based on what their belief system is and i i wholeheartedly believe that even if two people come from the same faith background they identify with the same faith background they believe two different things i really do i've not had one single experience where someone say someone is Roman Catholic or someone ide uh, uh, identifies as a Muslim. Um, no two Muslims are the same. No two mm -hmm. Roman Catholics are the same, right? Yeah. Um, they tend to practice it very differently, however way that looks like. And based on that is where um, I will help to identify coping strategies that will support them or try to, I guess, talk to them about uh, things that are actually giving them pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. I've I've met people who've told me they've been, um, you know, sexually abused by priests in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so those are difficult conversations I need to have with them. And that's where um, even me, myself being in that room might be triggering for them. And so I need to be very aware of that and very conscious of it. And, um, you know, I need to kind of walk a tight rope with how I engage in that conversation, because mm -hmm. even though I'm not an ordained anything i'm not a priest or anything of that nature they would still associate me with that right so um that is something that um again wherever they're at is where i meet them um that's uh that's something that i'm very very much focused on so you don't need to be an expert in any faith or religion you just i guess need to know the human condition yeah i love that you mentioned that you know even two people from the same faith uh practice it and experience it very differently. I think that that is very true of so many assumptions that we can make about somebody's lived experience. Um, and so important to approach with openness and recognizing the human that we have in front of us. Also really glad you said you don't mind talking about, you know, your own faith, because that is exactly my next question about, um, you know, how spirituality and faith shaped your early life maybe how that kind of set the foundation for some of the beliefs you carried about the path that you should follow in your life and to start to speak a little bit about how that relationship to your faith changed over time. Uh, that's a great question. And uh, a lot of people, um, you know, I think people are starting to become more aware of, I guess, Coptic Christianity. Um, the more that I talk to when I meet new people. So it's, I guess, uh, being circulated a lot more in the media but yeah I grew up in um, uh, so I was born in Egypt um, and I am a Coptic Christian so Coptic Christians um, so Coptic the word Coptic is can be used culturally or religiously right so you can meet someone who's Coptic uh, but they're not necessarily religious right and so it goes both ways kind of like someone who say is Jewish right they identify as Jewish but are not necessarily a practicing Jew right so mm -hmm. it's kind of like that 
So um, I grew up in a, a, in a Coptic household. So Coptic Christians in Egypt represents about 10 to 15% of the population in Egypt. So that makes them about the biggest minority group in the Middle East and in that part of the world, mm -hmm. um, Northern Africa, Middle East. And um, within Coptic Christianity, there's a lot of different uh, denominations. So the, the biggest denomination is the Orthodox denomination, mm -hmm. uh, which is the group that I belong to. And uh, there's Catholics, uh, there's uh, Protestants, there's a lot of different uh, groups within uh, uh, Coptic Christianity uh, that is represented there. Uh, but I grew up in, in an Orthodox household. Uh, my family immigrated here to Canada when I was six, so in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a pretty conservative household. Um, uh, very fundamental, um, not in a bad way, but like, you know, very strict, um, you know, wouldn't engage in cultural stuff here when we moved to Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, parents were very much uh, hyper aware of uh, different things that were happening here. And they tried to keep me and my sister, I guess, away from it, at least from what I remember or uh, how I like to remember my childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had to be home by a certain time and we couldn't um, go out with the opposite gender, sex and all that. So, um, you know, that was always fun. So, uh <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of how I grew up. Um, and that's kind of the faith that kind of shaped me um, uh, growing up. And, you know, uh, church was something that was very much a part of my life. Um, and not just religious services, but every facet of your life was connected to the community. So yes, you mm -hmm. would go to church on Sunday, but um, we had recreational facilities. So uh, we would play basketball, because we had a gym at our church here in Toronto three, four times a week. Mm -hmm. All my friends were within the church. Um, uh, we would have um, social gatherings within the church. We would have our uh, Christmas trips and March break trips and summer trips all within the church. Um, and that's a reflection of who I am today and that most of my friends are still uh, people from within the church community. Hmm. So um, that's kind of um, the setting in which I grew up in and um, how I you know, became to be the person that I am today. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's really interesting to know and to hear that a lot of people in your life and friends today are also still um, part of that church community and that that was such a source of community in more ways, maybe beyond what directly is related to faith or prayer. So you had shared with me that there was a time when you felt this disconnect from faith or real like challenging or loss of faith. So I'm curious to hear how that arose for you and what that time in your life looked like. That was when I went to university. So <laughs> uh, at that point, and I was a, like, I would be going to Sunday school and, uh, you know, I was a good Sunday school boy and uh, I, I knew all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I knew how many disciples Christ had and all these other things. But uh -huh. uh, so I, um, I went to York. And uh, so I was doing my undergrad in history. And, you know, um, when you look back at life, everything is you, you, you see everything in retrospect, right? So uh -huh. uh, I love history, uh, but I didn't really know what I was doing with it. So um, I eventually got into teacher's college because uh, I was like, I love to teach. I love coaching. 
uh, right? Uh, basketball. I'm a big basketball guy. Mm-hmm. I love playing basketball and coaching basketball. Mm-hmm. And I did, a, I did a little bit of that uh, within my own church community. So uh, when I went into history, and the only reason why I went into history, because I had good teachers in high school that made me love history. Most people don't love history. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, a good teacher makes all the difference. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And it's this person colonizing this person and all that. It's very boring, right? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I had a good teacher. So, and part of the requirements was to take a humanities course uh, mm-hmm. to fulfill the degree requirement um, uh, to get my history undergrad. So, um, I mean, I didn't know the difference between, you know, my head and my ass back then, to be quite <laughs> honest. So I looked at the humanities courses. I was like, oh, wait, there's this course called Christianity in Context. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a good old uh, <laughs> here. I, you know, that should be a bird course. I, I, I know some dates and mm-hmm. I know you know, all these other things. that it, <laughs> You thought I could just breeze through it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, this is not good. Uh, I got this. And so uh, I actually had convinced a few of my other friends to take it with me uh-huh. uh, who were in the arts. So we ended up taking Very it. Very good Christian boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm recruiting. Uh, <laughs> I think, I, I think York owes me some money for that. But, uh, uh, so we ended up taking the course. And I mean, me personally, I would say three, four weeks into it, I like, um, I came crashing down uh, from everything that I was ever taught, right? Because mm-hmm. we started this course. And for example, they're saying things like, you know, Matthew didn't write his gospel or Mark when we were looking at the Bible mm-hmm. in Christian context. You know, Matthew did not write his gospel and Mark didn't write his gospel. And I'm like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? That's mm-hmm. not, it's not, it's not how I understood it Mm -hmm. i was always taught in the church that they did so why are you saying this Mm. and so um it was interesting because i would say i fell in in kind of like two holes the whole of okay i started not to believe in everything that i was taught Mm -hmm. grown up and then the other hole was but i actually like what i'm hearing so let's Mm -hmm. take this out and figure out what the hell is going on here because something's happening here for me yeah right and Mm -hmm. um so I stuck it out, completed the course. I, I ended up, I actually did, I think I did end up getting an A in that course <laughs> from nice. what I recall, but it wasn't for the reasons of, uh, it wasn't because of, uh, you know, I knew all the dates and whatever I actually mm-hmm. studied and, you know, worked my behind off. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then I was like, no, something's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually that led me into kind of um, what I would have called back then atheism. Um, today, I would call that more skepticism. Mm-hmm. And then I started to explore and ask myself, what's going on here? And then in retrospect, looking back at it, I was just losing my child faith, mm-hmm. kind of maturing into more of a rational and adult uh, faith is what's, mm-hmm. what was happening there. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, we talked a little bit in, in past conversations that, you know, I I also at one time in my life went through this crisis of faith of, you know, the things that I had been taught as a child growing up in the Catholic faith, kind of um, being challenged and not really holding up to me and feeling them fall apart. But I feel like that skepticism, as you called it, or that process of going through doubt, again, can feel like a very uncertain process, but can actually, you know, in retrospect, uh, feel like a really important part of really understanding those things that do hold ground to you or understanding them in the context of a kind of broader scope of the world. Um, so really interesting to hear how that for you was this process of 
like you said, going out of like the child faith into a more mature version of what that, that meant. So how did that then lead to you becoming the spiritual care practitioner that you are today? That's a great question. And a lot of people would not expect me to be in this position um, with all that that happened, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who loses faith, someone who loses understanding. Um, but again, in hindsight, I would say that skepticism is a good laxative for bad religion. <laughs> what an <Right>? image. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I still have to incorporate kind of the medical stuff in there since I <laughs> That's what was happening. I had just literally taken a skeptic, a laxative, which was, you know, you want to term it skepticism and everything kind of came out of me and you kind of beat the bad religion out of you. So I, but I love the course that I took. So I was like, all right, let's see what's going on here. I took a few more courses in the humanities and religious studies. And then I was like, Hey, I need a few more to declare it as another major. So I ended up double majoring in history and religious studies in my wow. undergrad. Mm -hmm. The fortunate thing that led me, I guess, uh, fortunate or not, I'm not sure, but there was no jobs in teaching mm -hmm. at the time. So when I had finished school, um, when did I graduate? Around 2012. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I love religion. So I sought out a master's in it. I was wow. like, let me study this a little bit more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went, I, I actually ended up going to a seminary out of all places. Wow. Um, and that's because I started reading their books. Um, some of the books that really were a big influence on me were two books that I read that they had published. Uh, one is called um, uh, For the Life of the World by Alexander Schmemann. And the other one was Orthodox Prayer Life, which is where that quote on prayer comes from. Mm -hmm. And they were published by Sam Vladimir's um, Orthodox Press, which is by background a Russian or a Russian Orthodox school. But they, you know, over the years have become, I guess, uh, American Orthodox, if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, um, they had a great scholarship program. Uh, back then, the dollar was one to one, and I had some money saved up. So I mm -hmm. said, hey, why not two years of doing this? Um, mm -hmm. let, let, let's go. So I ended up um, moving to New York for two years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very affordable. They made it very affordable for me. And it was it was very good. So um, I was able to go and study and that experience truly and honestly did change my life so if, if if that story of what happened to me in class of kind of having that awakening was one change in my life i would say being in that school for those two years really made me who i am today right mm. the question and that's when i found out about spiritual care and hospital hospital um this work that is done in the hospitals mm -hmm. uh, but at the time i couldn't pursue it because um m money uh, was kind of tight for me so I told myself after I had finished my degree, when I come back home to Toronto, then I will pursue it. I'll mm. pursue more studies. And that's what ended up happening. You know, got my degree. First chance I got, um, I ended up doing clinical placements in, uh, in the hospital setting since mm -hmm. I already had my master's. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing led to another. And um, here I am. That's mm -hmm. pretty much the, sh the, the short end of the story. But, And that's how I pursued it. And ever since then, I've never looked back. I mean, this was really... Um, if this is what people call a calling, then mm -hmm. I, I found it. I really did because um, it's something that I very much um, enjoy. And there's so many different layers of what I can do with this uh, kind of a vocation, you know, from teaching students to seeing patients and clients at the bedside to administrative. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that, and I enjoy it. I enjoy it all. So 
um, that's how I kind of got into it. And that, that, that was really a turning point, my education at, at that school down in, um, in Yonkers, yeah. New York. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I find, you know, when you talk to me about what an average day looks like and people from all different walks, whether it's students or, you know, people who are bringing a new life or, you know, at the uh, side of someone who's dying and saying goodbye to a life, um, your work really inspires me and I find it really incredible. So you mentioned that this was something of a calling. And I want to know if it felt like that while you were in the process of some of these changes, going to New York or coming back and pursuing another degree or pursuing these placements. Um, were there times that you didn't really know what step to make next? Did it always feel very clear? How did your experiences and your faith shape how you approached change and those choices? I think my faith, or at least the faith that I identify with today was pretty much solidified with my experience when I was in New York, like mm -hmm. near towards the end of it. I really had some instrumental teachers there who really helped ground my, my faith and my understanding, one of them being uh, Father John Baer. He truly had a huge impact on me, especially with understanding the early Christian writers um, and the different things that they had written about. And uh, the different things that they were working out during their time. And that really had a big impact on me. I would say that right away when I found out about this kind of vocation, when I was there, I was set on it. Mm -hmm. um, everything else in between that happened, I would say, like, if there was times where I, I was ever out of it or um, not doing well or feeling low, and that's because there was people within the profession who were not necessarily meant to be there. Mm -hmm. be hard on me. And I've had those moments. I definitely had. I've had people try to you know, kind of be me out of it or um, say that, you know, you're too young, you don't have the skill set to do that, right? And I'm not going to call them up by, by name, but if they're ever listening to this, they know who they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and here I am. But yeah, they were always very hard on me. You know, they would read my stuff and say, you know, you're too religious, mm -hmm. right? Or you're too, uh, you're too fanatical. And I'm like, well, clearly you're not reading my stuff, right? And so it was those moments where it kind of gave me pause, but I would say, that feeling never went away from me. I always mm -hmm. knew that this is uh, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to pursue. And it was actually those experiences that said, you know what, I'm actually going to uh, pursue being a teaching supervisor hmm. because I want, I want good supervisors out there. I don't want these supervisors to be teaching students. Mm -hmm. um, and the ironic thing is a lot of them ended up leaving their places of employment, whether they were uh, let go or left on their own volition, ironically yeah. enough, because they were not appreciated. Yeah. Um, and it was those places that always ended up having low student turnout. So yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I would say outside of those moments, things were pretty much set for me. Like I, I knew from the get go and that hasn't changed uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty incredible. I, I don't know that everybody has that feeling of such a clear guide to what they're working towards. Did you have kind of a vision of how that role would play out that kept you anchored, even when people expressed their doubt in you or were hard on you? I mean, the opposite of that is true, where I had people doubting me, I had people believing in me and pushing me, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, my former, my former manager at my place of employment in Scarborough, um, uh, 
Ajith, he was someone who really uh, supported me during that time. So, you know, uh, shout outs to him for always believing in me, no matter what I was going through. Um, and um, it was people like him who were in my life that really, that really uh, helped me and anchored me to, you know, keep, keep a calm mind and to, to reflect on what was happening. The biggest thing in our profession and uh, in, in what we do um, from all the competencies that we study and we have to constantly be engaged in, I would say the most important one is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So he always kept me on my feet saying, just be self-aware of your feelings and emotions, you know, what's going on with you and why are you reacting this way, right? And uh, he was always the one to kind of keep me honest that way. And I think uh, if it wasn't for him, I don't know where I'd be today. Um, so um, that's something that um, I had good people. A lot, there's so many to name, but I would say he was the one person who was involved with all these interviews and everything that I'd gone through that went negatively for me. Mm-hmm. But he was an anchor at that time. Mm, that's awesome. Another question that I have for you is what are some of the ways that you think your exploration of faith and how you use it in your current role are maybe different than what some people would expect when they think of a spiritual care practitioner or someone who is working in a religious capacity? So I, I always get, (laughs) I always get misclassified. So like the other day I was on the unit with uh, one of my, uh, one of my new students and uh, we were explaining to one of the doctors, you know, that we provide psychotherapy and he's known me for almost a year now. And he looks at me and said, Oh, I didn't realize you did this. Mm -hmm. Right. And here Mm -hmm. I am preaching it from day one. Right. So Mm -hmm. Uh, part of it is people misclassify me all the time. So yes, people do see me as a priest, as a rabbi, as an imam, as a pundit, as whatever religious figure to whatever religion uh, mm-hmm. belongs to, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I am none of the above. You know, I am none of the above. I always uh, joke with people and say, you know, uh, I can drink and I can smoke and I can live life normally like <laughs> everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, part of that is uh, education, I would say educating Mm -hmm. and educating people. And I think a lot of it is experiential too. So um, I would say nine times out of 10, whenever I meet with people who are not necessarily spiritual or religious, but say they need counseling and I go and introduce myself, they'll tell me, oh, I'm not religious. Mm -hmm. Right. My, my, my response right away is, well, neither am I. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, what would you, uh, is there anything on your mind you want to talk about? And they kind of look at me funny. (laughs) Like, who is this kid? Who does does he think he is? Uh And they're like, no, really, I don't go to church. I was like, yeah, neither do I. Um, and they're like, but I don't believe in your God. And then I'll look at them and be like, well, what God don't you believe in? Mm-hmm. And then they'll be like, well, I don't believe in a God that would cause pain and suffering. I was like, oh, that's great. I don't believe in that God either. Mm-hmm. And then that usually goes into an hour conversation and they'll look at me. <laughs> I never thought I could talk to someone who somehow is religious or spiritual for an hour. Mm-hmm. Like, neither, neither could I. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's like landing on how people kind of can designate spirituality just to the realm of religion and not fully realize that we all maybe have some story that we tell about like our connection to something greater than us. Um, We all maybe have different ways of expressing that, but you know, we have some belief, even if it's tied up in some skepticism about what that is. 
at the end of the day, religion, I think, is important and it, it can be good, right? We just mm-hmm. need to make sure that we keep bad characters out of it, right? And there needs to be a process for that. But mm-hmm. I think, especially when you look at the world's hunger, the world and people and humanity, I think they're, they're hungry for something. Mm-hmm. And we are starting to replace religion and spirituality with other things. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness. Mm-hmm meditation techniques, mm-hmm. breathing exercises, all these things are things that were always rooted in different faith traditions, mm-hmm. right? whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, all these things practice mindfulness, yeah. meditation, and all that. We're yeah. just dropping the name of religion altogether. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that just shows you how hungry people are. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I try to differentiate between all that and uh you know show them that i'm not some fundamental guy i'm not here to convert you that's not what i'm here to do Mm -hmm. Uh, we actually have a policy in the hospital where people are not allowed to convert anyone uh that's not something that we 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 practice at all yeah i mean you're touching on a lot there that could like explode into a whole other conversation on you know the the complexity of um you know where religion has done harm and and the good that can also be taken out of those practices, recontextualizing those practices and things like mindfulness and yoga that have become kind of more secularized and, and the ways that, yeah, people still are using those tools for things like self-exploration and emotional regulation. You know, it really sounds like in your approach to your work, a lot of it is meeting the person that's in front of you. A lot of it is like, an emphasis on building the relationship, challenging these preconceptions that you may have. And, you know, as you said, kind of right at the beginning, every person has a different expression of what their faith looks like, even if they're part of the same religious backgrounds. I think there's something in what you said too, about, you know, the differences in how institutions and systems operate and really like the nuance and difference in individual people and how that shows up for them too. Um, which can be very different and very different set of expectations, very different in practice. So I do want to ask you a little bit more about, you know, you're working with people who are facing health issues um, that have brought them to the hospital um, or facing like major life milestones, like a birth or a death. What are some examples of how faith has shown up in the ways that people are kind of making sense of what is happening to them and what they maybe need to do next, their own kind of crossroad moments that you may see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I do um, like, it's, it's a wide range. I mean, I don't have any particular unit or program that I work for. I kind of work for the whole hospital. So yeah, I do see all of that in in between Um, right off the bat. I would say people who do are, who tend to be a little bit more religious or um, practice or identify with a particular faith community right away. will have their certain practices. Right. So um, so if you're a Catholic, for example, and, you know, I'm not picking on the Catholic Church, it's just <laughs> especially the area where I work, it's predominantly Catholic as well, mm-hmm. too. Um, so not to not to pick on them. But, for example, let's say during end of life. Right. They have a practice where the priest will come in and say prayers. Mm-hmm. Right. They call that the sacrament of the sick. Um, some kind of older Catholics might understand that as the last rites. They've, you know, gotten rid of that terminology and uh, have used the term sacrament of the sick. Right. Uh, any faith tradition has some sort of prayers towards the end of life, right? So, mm-hmm. 
So right away, when we look at people who are religious in that sense, you know, there are identifiable rights that will, we will connect them with their community clergy if they can get their own and they will come and perform those rituals for them. Mm-hmm. I would say with me personally and say working with people and seeing how faith and religion kind of comes into their life while they're here, I would say nine times out of 10, it's always at the forefront. It mm-hmm. really is because when you think of a hospital, you think of your mortality. Mm-hmm. Even if you're coming in for a hip replacement, right? Yeah. Like, let's say, you know, you're, I don't know, in your late uh, 60s, early 70s, you need a new pair of hips. People are thinking, well, the surgery might go sideways, mm-hmm. right? So people are thinking about their mortality, right? Even if, even for the simple procedures. Yeah. Right. And so uh, religion and faith always comes up all the time. And for me, I work in the realm of trying to identify what that means for you and how do you sustain yourself and maintain your uh, mental well-being through that Mm -hmm. what gives you hope right and how does suffering and evil look like for you from your own understanding of what your faith might be if you have one Mm -hmm. right even if you don't have a faith tradition if you're not spiritual or religious you derive meaning from something Mm -hmm. right whether maybe it's your work or your family Mm -hmm. your kids if you have kids um, you, you derive that from something you understand evil and suffering from, again, you get that from somewhere. Right. And I go in and I explore those, those themes with people. Right. And I try to find perspectives on, well, what does hope look like? Is there hope? Right. Sometimes I'll walk out of a room and be like, man, that was a really dark, dark conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see any kind of hope there, but Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that no two visits with the same person are always the same, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. um, and for me, that's the exploration I kind of get, but I would say faith and spirituality comes up in some way, shape or form, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's part of who we are, right? Whether we actually speak it out loud or not, it's part of how we live. We derive evil and good from something, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and for me, that's something that's very important that I try to explore at the bedside. So finally, I kind of want to ask you, what do you see ahead for yourself? uh, Or do you kind of embrace the unknown of seeing where life takes you? So I'll answer that question in two ways. And maybe I'll make a joke. Um, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite here. But yes, I do think about the future as much as I like to think and tell myself I don't, I do. Uh Um, But yes, I also live in the moment. uh, I to answer the question is I do embrace the mystery of my life and whatever will be will be. But Mm -hmm. I also at the moment, um, uh, um, two two big things, not big, but like two things I really want to engage in is research. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my big kind of hobbies now that I've really gotten into in the last year is the role of psychedelics mm-hmm. within, within healthcare. Yeah, um, it's really been an emerging topic. Happening. Yeah, so I mean, if you're following psychedelic news, I think UHN just uh, brokered some sort of deal with a company to, to use psychedelics. Um, just the other day, the government of Canada has legalized medical use of psychedelics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, It was just announced. And so for me, I want to look at the intersectionality between psychedelics and spirituality Mm -hmm. and kind of the use of it in early religion 
um, yeah. if any, if it's used and how did that impact people's faith and understanding? Mm -hmm. um, and how can that be utilized today in our healthcare setting, right? Um, we, we already see the medical research of, say, psychedelics with people who um, are depressed or have PTSD, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And this, is, and this isn't a clinic, clinical trial. We're not talking about people like finding it out on the streets and stuff. Yeah, but... and having the clinical setting and kind of yeah. structure and debrief and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I'm so fascinated by that. And so I mm -hmm. hope, to, you know, when I get some time, just conduct some research into that and see if there is a connection between psychedelics and spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely think there is. And, um, and uh, so that's been kind of what's been on my plate. And I would say the second thing is uh, I'm starting to finally have groups of students in the hospital yeah. to, to train them. So I'm planning to have my first group in May. Mm -hmm. So I'm just uh, busy prepping for them to host them. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, right now, currently, I have a couple of students with me just to kind of more as a trial to see how I am. And I think so far I'm doing a good job, but mm -hmm. um, I have a bias. So, uh, but uh, yeah, that's my next big thing is to have groups of students um, and to uh, provide uh, mentorship for them, supervise them, and to get them certified in this in this in this field. Um, mm -hmm. we, need, we need a lot more people in this field, especially uh, younger folk, to to continue um, doing this kind of work. Um, mm -hmm. Another stereotype in my profession as well. Uh, why should I trust you? You don't have any white hairs on, on your head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the, very younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The stereotype is usually older, old, quote unquote, older people are doing this uh, yeah. type of profession because they're giving their life up to something that's greater than them, mm. you know? And it's like, what are you, what are you giving your life up to? And it's like, well, to you, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm here for you. Yeah. So, um, uh, and uh, so those are the two things that I'm kind of, uh, you know, working towards and uh, kind of excited, excited for. So, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. And something I hear in what you shared too, you know, both in having students and, you know, challenging the conception that it's only older people who can kind of like really do a good job of holding the role of the psychotherapist is, um, you know, who says that we can't walk alongside each other on this journey. And, you know, it sounds like a lot of what you do is reflect back to people the wisdom that they have as well and not be the person who uh, is there to provide them answers or a framework that's different than their own, but really pointing them back to themselves. The, my first two mentors in this, uh, in, in this profession, when I moved back to Toronto, they're both now retired, right? So mm. um, yes, uh, I mean, we have to have the ability to learn um, uh, from people who are older than us, right? They, um, mm -hmm. We live in a society where kind of um, uh, seniors are kind of uh, put to the wayside uh, and I think that's another thing that we're forgetting too like when you look at cultures cultures from all over the world mm -hmm. um, learning from people who are older than you was actually the way that you were taught that was yeah. your right mm -hmm. uh, and so for me I take that seriously right I don't see young or old I see opportunity mm -hmm. um, I see potential growth and wisdom uh, we have a term in our field where we call it the living human document when we refer to our clients, because, you know, they're living, they're human, and they're a document in that mm -hmm. the document can be added onto, right? Yeah. It, never, it never ends. So mm -hmm. um, we have a lot uh, of growth, um, you know, that we need to engage in, and it doesn't matter how young or old you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I take away a message of uh, how we, we really do affect one another, and that there is a lot of beauty in our interdependence on one another too, and that there's so much to, to learn 
from people from all ages, all experiences, all faith. Just something you reminded me when, when it comes to beauty, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he's a Russian novelist, 19th century. Uh, I would label him as an existentialist, a huge <laughs> influence on me. Uh, he, you know, in one of his books, he said, beauty will save the world. Mm. So let's, let's learn how beauty looks like, live it out so that we can all save each other. Mm. That's really lovely. I would love for that to be kind of the closing note of, of this conversation. So thank you so much again for your time and sharing your story and what you do. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful that our paths crossed and that we get to have these conversations. So thank you, Bavali. No worries. Thank you. And thank you for having me and uh, looking forward to, to more conversations and dialogues with you. <laughs>